Jefferson ate and drank and walked with ordinary men and submitted to an ignoble death in order that we could recognize him. Nobody called him a hero or a martyr. He was simply doing what his father told him to do and doing it with delight. Those who want to know him must walk the same path with him. These are the martyrs in the scriptural sense of the word, which simply means witnesses. In life, as well as in death, we are called to be witnesses, to bear the stamp of Christ. I believe that Jim Elliot was one of these. His letters and journals are the tangible ground for my belief. They're not mine to withhold. They're a part of the human story, the story of a man and his relation to the Almighty. They are facts. I write like I talk, without thinking much beforehand, and sometimes spiel stuff that were better left in the ink bottle, Jim wrote to me in 1948. I think it was Browning who, having been queried on something he wrote in early life, said, When I wrote that, two people knew what it meant. God and I. Now, only God knows. So with anything perplexing, throw it out, discounted as an abortion sprung from a mind that is at times overproductive to its own hurt. That's the end of the quotation. Once in 1952, I mentioned to Jim that I had sent an excerpt from one of his letters to a friend. He replied, I'm not too excited about your sending my letters to others. I don't like to write a page knowing that perhaps a not-as-sympathetic reader as yourself may scan it. This is a confession that I'm not trying to impress you with my letters. I barely reread them, pay little attention to grammar and punctuation, and know that my handwriting has suffered. I guess I will have to trust you to be choosy in sending representations of me to folks whose impression factors should be delicately censored. End of the quotation. In the task of selection, I have not, quote, delicately censored, unquote, anything at all, which I felt would contribute to the faithful portrayal of the whole man as I knew him. The reader will notice the repetition of certain ideas throughout his writings, he will also wonder if perhaps in certain chapters I have included only those portions of his writings which indicate the growth of his soul, to the exclusion of those which would show a more human side of his personality. Of both of these, the repetition, the long passages dealing with soul exercise, I would say this. I have taken pains to let my choices represent the tone of Jem's writings as a whole so that the number of excerpts on a given subject or during a given period are in direct proportion to the total content of the letters and diaries. There were periods when his writing was occupied almost exclusively with the metaphysical. There were others when it dealt with the mundane. When Jim was 20 years old, he prayed, Lord, make my way prosperous. Not that I achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. End of quote. His life 
was that to me who shared it more intimately than any other. Was it extraordinary? I offer these pages so that the reader may decide for himself. If his answer is yes, if he finds herein the stamp of Christ and decides that this is extraordinary, what shall we say of the state of Christendom? And now the prologue. When Jim was a college student in 1949, he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Seven years later, on a hot Sunday afternoon, far from the dormitory room where those lines were written, he and four other young men were finishing a dinner of baked beans and carrot sticks. They sat together on a strip of white sand on the Curarai River, deep in Ecuador's rainforest, waiting for the arrival of a group of men whom they loved but had never met, savage Stone Age killers, known to all the world now as Alcas. And I need to add a note now, as I'm recording this, that the Alcas are now called Waurani, W-A-O-R-A-N-I. Two days before, the hope of years had been partially fulfilled. Three of these Indians had met them on the beach, where they now sat. The first friendly contact, long anticipated and carefully prepared for, had been completely successful. The young man and his two women companions stepped off the jungle green on the other side of the river and after slight hesitation, accepted the hand of Jim Elliot, who led them across the river to the other white men. At first, the naked tribespeople were distrustful, and with reason. They had known of white men who flew in great birds, similar to that which now stood beside them on the sand, who had proved that they could not be trusted. But somehow they had sensed, throughout the long weeks when these five men had attempted to show them their friendship, that there was no catch here. The white men had at first dropped gifts to the Alcas, similar to those they had received in other years, machetes, cooking pots, ribbons, cloth. These things were most welcome, and the Indians began to wait for the sound of that yellow ayamu, which appeared with regularity, though whether a people who cannot count beyond three would recognize the seven-day rhythm is questionable. When the sound of the motor was heard, they would run from their manioc patches, from inside the great oval-shaped leaf-thatched houses, or from downriver where they had been fishing in their dugout canoes. There they were again, those strange white-faced men, waving and shouting, then lowering a bucket on a rope from the plain from which the Indians could grab all manner of delights. And what was that? Suddenly a voice boomed through the air in their own language. The man was speaking to them. Poinani, bitimiti ponimupa, come. We are your friends. We like you. We are your friends. Could it be that they did not intend to take away the Indians' land? to destroy their crops, to kill their people, as others had done, there were some who began to believe. An idea came to them. Why not encourage these men? 
Wouldn't it be worthwhile to find out what their true intentions were? Might there not be greater gains for the Indians if they played along with the strangers? The following week they returned the airborne gift. A beautiful feather crown, carefully woven, with a palm splinter facing, was placed in the basket which was slowly circling at their feet. Later, an extraordinarily enterprising Alka made a little model plane, as much like the Piper family cruiser as he could make it, and set it up on the roof of his house. Had he been secretly spying on the house in Arahuno, which was the base of operations, where a model plane had been hung on a pole for just such an inspection? Or was it entirely his own idea to construct a model? When the plane circled over one day, the Alcas heard one of the men call, We're on the Kurarai. Come. Come and see us. This was too much for some of them. Still torn by doubts and long-held fears of these white men, they hesitated two days, possibly spying out the situation from the thick growth of jungle into which they know how to vanish as effectively as the dappled ocelot of their forest. But on the third day, their curiosity, or who can say what motives, overcame their fears, and answering the calls of the five men who strode up and down the beach, three young Indians made their appearance. Who were these white men? Brothers of the monkey that swung in the vines, with their hairy faces and arms? Brothers of the armadillo, who wears what must be an uncomfortable covering and never walks naked? Sons, perhaps, of the sun-maker, since they came from the skies? Yet they laughed, they spoke words which the Indians...